we can think of it. We'll negotiate. negotiate that. Uh, our first talk today is Leslie Wickman, Faith Integration in the Science Classroom. You're from the Center for Research in Science at Azusa Pacific University. That's correct. Welcome. Thank you. <clears throat> Good afternoon. It's an honor to be here. I actually grew up in the Pacific Northwest and went to a rival school to George Fox just down the road in Salem at Willamette University. Um, does anybody recognize this photograph? Did anybody go to the ASA conference last summer? Okay. That's a clue. This is actually from Rosslyn Chapel. So I had the pleasure of going last year, and that was one of my little side trips. But uh, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Um, as a Christian instructor in science, um, I have a passionate desire to help students as they wrestle through the tough issues of science and faith that I wrestled with myself, and I'm sure that many of you did as well. At a macro level, my goals as a science instructor within a faith-based setting are these, to help students develop a strong foundation for both spiritual growth and intellectual pursuits, to exercise and stretch the student's capacity to think critically, to demonstrate how studying academic subjects enables a greater knowledge of, faith, of and faith in God, uh, to enable students to see science as a tool for discovering God's creativity and wisdom in the wonders of nature, and to encourage each student to de develop his or her God-given gifts and abilities to the fullest potential in every aspect of his or her life for God's glory as an act of worship. There are a wide variety of ways that faith and learning can be integrated in the sciences, including the methods that are listed here. And I'm sure many of you have seen these or come up with them yourself. The first one is excellence in doing everything, including science, to the best of one's ability as unto God. The second is ethics, or practicing science according to biblical morality. For example, human dignity, respect for life, freedom, uh, this would correspond to the Micah 6-8 theme of justice, mercy, and humility uh, that we've been focusing on this week. Third, stewardship, or exploring the Christian role as accountable stewards for the gifts that God has entrusted us with. For example, caring for nature and environment, uh, and also developing individual gifts and talents, uh, as we've also been discussing in one of the tracks uh, yesterday. Fourth, exploration, or investigating the wonders of creation. I'm going to come back to this. Uh, fifth, hermeneutics, or searching out the context and intention of biblical passages relating to origins and other scientific concepts. And finally, worldview, or examining the truth claims of alternative worldviews vis-a-vis the Christian perspective relative to efficacy, utility, reason and logic. And the fourth method of exploration will be the primary focus of my talk today uh, in the interest of time. Through the thoughtful implementation of each of these faith integration methods, students will hopefully come to understand that the, both the truth about nature and the truth about nature's create, creator must complement rather than contradict each other. 
a lack of understanding of either science or theology as ways that we learn the truth about nature and about God can often make people feel that they must choose one or the other. But a deeper and more complete understanding of each of these fields enables us to embrace both without contradiction. If we can just start with the notion that absolute truth exists about both God and nature, then we have to agree that those absolute truths cannot logically contradict each other. So the more we correctly understand about each of these fields will give us a better understanding of the whole picture. And our, I believe that our paths as individuals and as a society to truth about God and truth about nature are iterative. In other words, we might take two steps forward and one step back. Uh, and this is really in keeping with a scientific method which holds on to truth tentatively, acknowledging that new evidence could come along at any time that would make previous scientific theories or even scientific laws invalid. For example, <laughs> uh, take the early Greek view of the sun moving around the earth. Uh, Copernicus proposed and later Galileo made observations with his telescope showing that, in fact, the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. Uh, this was an example of broadening the human perspective and looking at traditionally held ideas from a larger frame of reference and working with more information. And a similar thought revolution, or a paradigm shift, if you will, occurred in moving from Newtonian physics to relativity theory. I'm not going to digress into a lecture on relativity here, but let's just suffice it to say that scientific concepts like gravity and time, which we thought were fairly well understood, got turned on their heads with the advent of relativity. Uh, in the same way, I would hope that no one would seriously claim to have God or all of Christianity completely figured out. In fact, we could say that Jesus himself brought about a paradigm shift in our understanding of God. As 1 Corinthians 13:12 says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. And I believe that Paul's words here uh, apply both to our knowledge and understanding of God as well as to our knowledge and understanding of his creation and maintaining an at attitude, again, of humility about we, what we know and the great amount that we don't know. And personally, as I go through life and do more research and investigation, I revise my own understanding of various passages of Scripture as well as my understanding of nature. As a scientist as well as a teacher of science, I find empirical evidence and rational arguments very appealing as well as useful. And there are a number of classical rational argu arguments for God's existence, each of which can be used in the science classroom. They've been call called by various names through the ages, but the essentials are summarized in the following four arguments. <clears throat> First, the cosmological argument, then the ontological argument, the anthropological argument, and the teleological argument. And in the interest of, of time, I'm just going to touch on the first three arguments and focus on the fourth, which serves as a consistent template for faith learning integration in, in my science classroom. So first of all, the cosmological argument, uh, which has been credited to various philosophers from Plato and Aristotle to St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, 
basically reasons from the logic of cause and effect. All effects have causes, and since the universe had a beginning, it must also have a beginner. And next, the ontological argument. And uh, 17th century uh, mathematician Blaise Pascal summed up the ontological argument as the God-shaped vacuum within every man. Uh, the fact that we have in us the idea of God suggests that God is its cause. Next, the anthropological argument, um, which points to evidence for humans' innate moral conscience or natural... Oops, what did I just do there? Did not mean to do that. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, so the anthropological argument points to evidence for humans' innate moral conscience or the concept of natural law, as well as uh, the religious experiences that are reported by many people. And the next argument is the teleological argument. And as a scientist, the teleological argument is of particular interest to me, being perhaps the most commonly discussed argument for God's existence in today's science and technology-oriented uh, society. Uh, consider this quote from science historian Frederick Burnham in an article by David Briggs, Briggs on science, religion, and the Big Bang in the L.A. Times in 1992. The idea that God created the universe is a more respectable hypothesis today than at any time in the last hundred years. The teleological argument has been associated with great thinkers from Plato to William Paley, and this argument claims that the design and order observed in the natural realm point, point to a purposeful creator. And as Isaac Newton remarked in 1650, whence arises all that order and beauty we see in the world. St. Paul wrote in the first chapter of his letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. <clears throat> and astronomers, as well as earth and life scientists, are constantly astounded by the complexity of everything that they study. Yet it all fits together perfectly in an intricately balanced synergistic system. The earth is not just barely, but rather is overwhelmingly well-suited for life. Just consider earth's narrow range of temperatures, its thin curtain of precisely balanced gases in an atmosphere that shields us from harmful radiation, and the incredible chemical and physical properties of the water molecule. In its liquid phase as the perfect solvent, in its solid phase as an insulator, and in its gaseous phase as a self-purifier, as well as the Earth's just-right gravity and the many other complicated relationships of the various parts of the biosphere to each other. And the, the most obvious distinguishing fact about planet Earth is that it's inhabited. 
Isaiah wrote uh, in chapter 45, verse 18, For thus says the Lord, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it a waste place. He formed it to be inhabited. Our exploration of space to date has confirmed that the other planets and moons in our solar system are not even close to being able to sustain life of any complexity. The other objects in our solar system are wastelands. For example, Earth's so-called sister planet, Venus, is just slightly smaller than the Earth and a little closer to the Sun, but that's where their similarities end. Venus has a surface temperature of about 900 degrees Fahrenheit, an atmosphere so thick with carbon dioxide that its atmospheric pressure is more than 90 times of that at Earth's surface. And as if that weren't enough, clouds laced with sulfuric acid and no water. So, so much for its similarities with the sister planet. Mars, on the other hand, in the other direction from the sun, uh, is substantially smaller than the Earth, a little farther out from the sun, and significantly colder. Uh, it has very little atmosphere, an atmosphere of carbon dioxide that is about one one-hundredth of the uh, thickness of Earth's. Its gravity too weak to retain either atomic oxygen or water vapor, so its only water is frozen. So in between Mars and Venus, here on the third rock, as it were, we're just the perfect distance from the sun for life. Even beyond the Earth itself, the rest of our solar system bears the marks of biofriendliness. Saturn and Jupiter, gas giants in the outer region of the solar system, are close enough to protect us from incoming Earth-bound comets and asteroids, but not so close as to disturb our perfect but fragile orbit around the Sun. For example, some of you might remember uh, back in 1994, Jupiter captured the incoming comet Shoemaker-Levy, drawing it in with its massive gravity like it's done many times before. And I don't know if you can see these red marks or scars on Jupiter, but those are where the comet fragments struck Jupiter, and each one of those spots are bigger than the Earth itself. Just imagine what would have happened if one of them had hit the Earth. <clears throat> Jupiter, Saturn, and the other Jovian planets act like cosmic vacuum cleaners, sucking up space debris that could really ruin things for us here on Earth. We see evidence of this life-friendly design, not just here in our solar system, but throughout the entire universe. In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 33, verse 25, the writer tells us that God established his covenant with day and night and with the fixed laws of heaven and earth. The fixed laws harmoniously governing interactions between matter, space, energy, and time seem very arbitrary but result in a highly ordered universe that provides the perfect conditions for life on our planet. For example, if the strong nuclear force were stronger or were good for longer distances, essentially all the subatomic particles, all the protons and neutrons in the universe would be stuck together in one gigantic mass. If the strong nuclear force were weaker, we'd have no atoms other than hydrogen. If the electromagnetic force were either stronger or weaker, chemical bonding would be dramatically altered, and we wouldn't have the right elements and compounds available for life. If the expansion rate of the universe were slower, or the mass density of the universe greater, 
or the gravitational constant greater, the universe would collapse back onto itself. If the expansion rate of the universe were faster, or the mass density lower, or the gravitational constant smaller, stars and planets never would have formed. Lydia Jaeger, uh, physicist and academic dean at L'Institut Biblique de Nogent-sur-Marne in France, <laughs> writes in her essay, Cosmic Order and Divine Word, the law-like regularity and consequent modelability of natural phenomenon are the unquestioned assumptions that underlie all scientific research. But common to all except for the most extreme relativists is the conviction that there is some basic deep order in nature that allows for the emergence of meaningful scientific practice. This view and the refrain of ultimate goodness, God saw all that he had made and it was very good, stands in clear contrast to the Babylonian imperial cosmology in which creation results from warfare and a power struggle between competing gods. In particular, laws of nature are not self-explanatory. To me, they are, the most, are most powerfully interpreted as traces of the creator's handwriting. The physical laws point to a creator god of power, order, rationality, and care for creation, who, according to the cause and effect logic of the cosmological argument, must exist outside and apart from the created realm of space, time, matter, and energy. This much, at least, can be read from the book of nature. And Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I like to think that this refers to God in Christ holding all things together with the physical laws. And even atheistic physicists such as Sir Fred Hoyle have made such comments as, there's a coherent plan in the universe, though I don't know what it's a plan for. And British philosopher Anthony Flew, who recently converted from atheism to theism, cited the motivation for his conversion as reason, mainly in the form of arguments to design. <clears throat> Astronomers and astrophysicists today recognize the anthropic cosmological principle, which was laid out by J.D. Barrow and F.J. Tipler in 1986, which acknowledges a long and growing list of hundreds of universal properties whose magnitudes must, must fall within a very narrow range of values in order for life to exist anywhere in the universe. <clears throat> And another obvious place where we see amazing complexity is in biology. Just a single cell, just a single living cell, oh, excuse me, contains as much information as 100 million pages from an encyclopedia. Sir Fred Hoyle estimated the odds of getting just the basic enzymes together that are necessary for life, never mind the DNA or an actual cell, to be one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. And for just a small comparison's sake, it doesn't even come, come close to those odds, but uh, the odds of picking one particular atom from all the atoms in the universe is just one chance in 10 to the 80th power. And the odds of picking one particular atom from all the atoms in 10 to the 80th universes is still only one chance in 10 to the 160th power. So this this, these odds of getting the enzymes right uh, dwarfs those odds. 
So overwhelming is the evidence of biofriendliness in the universe that currently the main counterargument to the involvement of some sort of creative intelligence is the multiverse hypothesis. Uh, the multiverse hypothesis speculates that there may be an infinite number of separate universes, each with a different set of physical laws. Our universe is perhaps the only one among all of them to randomly get the set of physical laws just right so that life can exist. Of course, there's no real way to either verify or falsify the existence of additional parallel universes. And in humility, we need to allow that maybe God does so love the multiverse, like we heard the other day. Um, but even these additional universes still rely on the existence of some set of orderly physical laws. Renowned author and theoretical physicist Paul Davies writes, The degree of biofriendliness we observe in the universe seems far in excess of what is needed to give rise to a few observers. If the ingenious biofriendliness of our universe were the result of randomness, we might expect the universe to be minimally rather than optimally biophilic. I made up this biophilicity. I don't think that's really a word, but it seemed to fit. Um, note, too, that multiverse explanations still need to assume the existence of laws of some sort. So they do not offer a complete, complete explanation of the law-like order of the universe. Finally, invoking an infinity of unseen universes to explain certain features of the universe we do observe seems the antithesis of Occam's razor. It is an infinitely complex explanation. Randy Van Draught, professor of biology at Calvin College, and James Clark, professor of geology at Wheaton College, write in an essay on environmental stewardship. In Romans 8.19, Paul tells us that all of creation is looking forward to the salvation of God's people, for therein the creation itself will be relieved of the curse to which it was subjected through the fall of humankind. Personal salvation in Christ eventually translates to the redemption and restoration of all creation. This bears out God's redemptive intent expressed in John 3.16, where Jesus says, For God so loved the cosmos, the word that we usually hear as world is actually the Greek cosmos, all that he made, that he gave his only son. Thus Jesus was saying in John 3.16 that God loved the entire universe and everything in it. As we study the complexity from the most minuscule quark or lepton to the dark energy fueling the expansion of the universe, we have to agree that God must have truly loved his creation. The scale of the universe is beyond comprehension for most of us. Yet the more we learn about it, the more we realize that none of it is wasted space. I view science as the tool that can be used to explore the natural realm and illuminate the characteristics of the awesome God who formed atoms, time, energy, and space out of nothing and pulled it all together. The teleological argument can indeed bear witness to God's existence and divine attributes, perhaps not least for the student struggling to reconcile science and faith. As William Lazarus beautifully writes for the Augustine Institute, the creation shows forth its creator's wisdom and power. Notwithstanding its inherent ambiguities, the world bears witness to God's steadfast love and care. The majesty of God reflected in the creation is a reason for worshiping and thanksgiving, for trusting and obeying God.
Thanks. We have four minutes for questions. Why don't you start with, early on you talked about starting a nest with truth, very good point. So we do spend some time talking about that in terms of, you know, what is truth? What is absolute truth? What does that concept mean? What is it? What is, where do you stand if you don't believe in such a thing as absolute truth? So we do spend some time on that. And it's a very good point. I mean, uh, you know, Christian worldview issues. I think even in a, a Christian uh, university such as where I teach are something that, um, don't get a lot of airtime, I think. And uh, I think those discussions are very worthwhile to have in class, too. And yes, you're right. It needs to be discussed. Because you're generally not all on the same page. Another question. A couple of things. First, do you recognize God's infancy as well as his transcendency? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And the other question is you said, okay, there's a in fact, there must be a cause, but then some of them say, well, then what caused God? Right. Well, yeah. For, okay, sorry. Um, he he said um, that uh, if if you start from a position of uh, believing in the imminency and transcendence of God, um, you can get into a question of well, okay, we believe. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, if you, if you talk about cause and effect then God, and God causing the universe, then sometimes philosophically people will ask them, well, what caused God? And, um, yeah, I mean, I actually had this conversation with someone recently at the MetaNexus conference, and the, the fellow was an atheist philosopher, basically, and it was interesting. And he, we kind of talked about how everybody has their brute facts, you know, and either you take... The universe itself is a brute fact, which is much harder to do now with the acceptance of the Big Bang Theory and a beginning to the universe. Or you take God as a brute fact. And, and even Aristotle talks about the unmoved mover and uh, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you do kind of have to start from your, your brute, brute fact of God's existence and uncaused. Relative to time. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you. <laughs> Any other questions? I have one. Um, on your little pyramid there about uh, theology and science, you mm -hmm. had uh, knowledge above understanding. My question is, can you understand something without knowledge? You know, I actually didn't get into that. I said there were a couple other uh, places where I had kind of two different um, terms. And, and what I usually talk about when I talk about it in the classroom is the fact that um, if there appears to be a conflict, usually it's a conflict of understanding. Our knowledge is incomplete, and so we don't have perfect understanding. So if we, if we could really have the whole illuminated picture and all the facts, we'd see that that was a misperception. Any other questions? Thank you very much, Leslie.
you, we have to turn.